Hello, wherever you are in the world today, welcome to Beyond the Art and our series, The Stories That Carry Us. I'm your host, Cray Beaumont Flynn, a citizen of the Cherokee Nation and the Delaware Tribe of Indians. In each episode, we will discuss with various Native American artists, influencers, art leaders, and everyone in between their experiences, the communities they serve, and the translation and interpretation of the Native American art world today. Karen Ann. Okay, well, welcome to Beyond the Art. So tell me a little bit about yourself and some of the artwork that you actually create and what actually inspires you and is in your DNA to promote Native American art. Well, that's a pretty huge question. And so <laughs> let me start by saying that my name is Karen Ann Hoffman. I'm a citizen of the Oneida Nation of Wisconsin, and I'm a Haudenosaunee raised beadwork artist. I'm the student of Samuel Thomas and his mom, the late Lorna Hill, from Niagara Falls, Ontario. I've been doing yeah. this kind of beadwork uh, for probably about 25 years. And so it is my mission to stay as connected as I can to the cultural past that inspires this work while beading fully in the moment and responding to contemporary and at the same time, laying a table for those spaces we have yet to see so that this intersection of past, present, and future happens all in one soap bubble moment. Fantastic. Yeah. How, how, what instigated you to actually do this type of artistry? So if you're asking if I was always a beater, the answer to that is no. I often tell this story. I really wasn't a beater. Um, I really wasn't interested in beadwork. I really didn't care anything about beading or beadwork as a young woman. Um, but at some point in my married life, um, I was married to a wonderful man. Um, and he was deeply involved in his language, the Menominee Nation's language. And one day, my tribal newspaper showed up on our doorstep, the Galloway Sucks. And in the Galloway Sucks, it had an advertisement, come to this workshop. First time raised beadwork is going to be taught here in Wisconsin. Right. And so I was not at all interested because I don't care anything about beading at that time. But the husband said, you should go. And I said, well, I really don't want to go. It's a two-hour drive one way just to get to this <laughs> workshop about something that I'm not a beater. I really don't. And my Michelle said, you should go. And I was many things in those days, but among them, I believe, was a good wife. And so when he said I should go, I thought, what the heck, I'll go. <laughs> so I took that two-hour drive, and I went into this room where I really didn't know anybody. And um, I met my teachers. And at that moment, although I was probably the least skilled bead worker in the room, not probably, absolutely the least skilled bead worker in the room, I really did fall immediately under the entrancement of raised beadwork. Uh, not so much what it is, but what I began to mm -hmm. see that it could do in this world. And so from that moment, I was um, committed to the idea mm -hmm. of becoming a Haudenosaunee raised beadwork artist. It's taken many years, an awful lot of practice, a lot of repetitive right. stitches, but I feel I'm at a point in my career now where I have something to say 
not for myself, but on behalf of those who were and those who will be. Mm -hmm. Correct. So is there a continuation of a story that you're trying to develop or tell through your beadwork? Well, the first thing I would do is uh, say that I have issues around the word story. Um, I think that English has a lot of great beauty in it, wonderful poetry, amazing imagery, but it lacks something sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I think it lacks in its word or use of the word story. Too often, to my ears, story is meant to minimize. Oh, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. Oh, that's just an old story. Story, story. It doesn't have the gravitas that I I feel like like I'm trying to look for. I don't like myth. I don't accept legend. Um, I've been using oral tradition, but I'm not sure that's really what I want to say. What I want to say is that there's this great wisdom that has been passed down for many generations. And I feel like it's my responsibility at this point in time to use a needle and thread, a bit of glass beads, to mark that history, that wisdom, and to lay those markers for Mm -hmm. the future. It has very little to do with me, but everything to do with our community. Correct, correct. It's a little bit more in depth. I agree with you. The word story is very limited because there's a lot of depth. There's a lot of connection. It's it's part of oneself uh, combinated with a, a, a lot of various factors. So during your process, what is, is your process? Do you draw something now? Do you have something visually in your mind? Is it a iconic graphic? What is your process in actually creating the work that you do? Well, it varies from piece to piece, but... Typically, typically my process starts this way. For some reason, for whatever reason, I have no idea what the reason is. Something will come. It just comes to you. (laughs) Well, you know, and I don't mean to sound goofy about that, but but there is some truth in that. There will be something that will be niggling at my brain, at my conscience, something that is in the back of my mind. I don't know how Mm -hmm. it gets there. But it'll ferment there for weeks, months, years, sometimes a decade or more. And then at some point, I'll see, literally see a piece that describes whatever it was that was fermenting back there. And then I begin the work to research, make sure that what it is that I think I understand that I really understand it as deeply as is humanly possible for me to understand it. And I do a lot of work um, drawing, sketching, model making, creating in paper. I'll do that for months before I take the first snippet of piece of velvet. For me, the objects that I make are um, more than objects. When I spend a year or more with a particular piece that is of import to me, I consider those pieces and I coined the word to be legacy pieces. And those legacy pieces, in my feeling, have an animacy to them. They have a voice. They have something that they want to say. There is a message involved. My fingers might be used to produce that message, but the message is not mine. I'm just 
I'm just holding the needle and thread. Um, right. Yeah, and I'm not even sure translating because some translators that I know, they actually um, take something and then reform it to make it understandable right. to someone else. And I'm not interested yeah. in whether or not other people understand what comes out of my fingertips. I'm interested in that whatever message, whatever thinking, whatever tradition I'm thinking about gets expressed in its purest, most minimalist form. And whether or not other people get it is not really up to me. It is up to the piece and it's up to the audience to come to that piece prepared to have a conversation, prepared to visit multiple times, prepared mm -hmm. to change and learn. That's the only way the pieces are truly alive is when they're in right. conversation with mm -hmm. an audience. So that part's right. not my responsibility. <laughs> <laughs> but I do strive to make sure that these legacy pieces find homes where the possibility of engaging with an audience is very mm -hmm. high, where they find homes where the caretaking of the pieces is very, very careful and that they find homes where they'll have a life beyond mine. So Karen, and when you do uh, do the pieces, what type of form of beadwork do you do? It, do? Are you specific to one form like jewelry or is it more uh, artistic value in um, painting art pieces or what type of beadwork really inspires you? Well, I, a, a lot of people ask me if they make jewelry and I don't, you know, all hail to the jewelry makers out there. It's just not something that I, I do. What I am known for are taking forms that are exquisitely culturally connected and pushing them, enlarging them, changing them, asking those forms to do something that they've never done before. I'm not interested in making the same thing twice. I'm interested in creating something in terms of an object. I want to make a legacy piece that's never been made before. I want it to be visually connected to our past, but I want it to be unique. I want my pieces to have their own voices and their own lives. So what am I known for? What kind of beadwork do I do? I do Haudenosaunee raised beadwork. I do want those pieces to be culturally connected, but the pieces that I make are um, large and um, some might say oversized. Mm -hmm. They're not made to decorate anybody's apartment or home. They're right. meant for right. their own purpose. Correct. They st to stand alone as an as a art piece. Since your husband heard your calling for you and kind of gave you that little step ahead, mm -hmm. How do you see Native American artistry being educated to the youth so it's not lost, um, so we don't lose that connection to our DNA of the people before us and the people ahead of us that were consistent in promoting Native American artistry in every form possible? I don't want to limit the promotion of Native art simply to Native families. It is my personal goal to normalize um, the presence of Native art all across the community. 
it's a very popular saying these days that every place you are is native land. You are on native land. We all are. Mm -hmm. And what strikes me is native art has been on Turtle Island for a very long time, tens of thousands of years. It used to be the art, the public art mm -hmm. present on Turtle Island. Over the last little teeny tiny slice of time, all of that public art, much of that public art, probably 95% of that public art has been erased from the landscape. Um, all too often deliberately, but it is mm -hmm. gone. It's my mission to normalize the presence of public art back on the landscape. And so it won't just be Native families that will drive by a mural in rural Wisconsin and see Native art. It won't just be Native families that will see sculptures in public parks. It won't just be Native families that go downtowns and see celebrations of rising and villages and people and commitments and stewardship of the land that's been happening for thousands of years. It will be everyone who will get the joy of seeing Native art everywhere on Turtle Fantastic. Yeah. Do you believe that artists have a responsibility uh, to their artwork and promoting it, but also um, carry in their work and practice that it's continued, that it, there's an education component to it, that it's not just for resale value, I guess, that the youth, since a lot of educational components in schools are not teaching art in their curriculum, that it's part of an artist's responsibility to help those youth that are interested in art to find their calling, I guess you could say. Well, I, see a, lot of, I see a lot of different pieces in there. And so maybe I'll, uh, what is the sure. they yeah. unpack the yeah. pieces of it. Um, do I think it's the artist's responsibility to mentor young people? No, I don't. Okay. I don't think it's a football player's responsibility to mentor young people. I think any professional is obligated to practice their art, their craft, their athleticism at the mm -hmm. highest level that is possible for that individual person. I feel like as an artist, for me, not for everybody else, but for me, my responsibility is to the artwork that I produce. My responsibility is to those who have mentored me and those who have brought me where I am. That doesn't mean that families, societies, cities, schools, organizations like libraries and public art places don't have their own responsibilities to be open to a broad range of, of um, uh, patrons, kids or elders, the rich, the poor, people with and without mental health issues. All of those folks should be welcome in those public spaces. But I don't think it's my job to make that happen. My hands are mm -hmm. full making the art that I do. I mm -hmm. really look for partners who have expertise in those areas to fulfill that part of somebody's idea of what the mission of art is. My piece of that is in the creation and in the, in the shepherding of my legacy. Gotcha. <laughs> But I can't do it all. I'm only one human being. Right. <laughs> and you only got two hands. And I only have so many hours on this earth. 
Well, right, they have right. so many hours on this earth. And so my job, I think, is to make these pieces that call to be made, find them homes where they can live their best lives, hopefully in institutions that take on other pieces of the mission. And so that mm-hmm. those pieces can live their best life of fulfilling that part of the mission. But I just can't do it all. I am so sorry. I know everybody wants <laughs> artists to fix the world. But yeah, <laughs> right, right. But I, well, it's a creative yeah. mind. I think people look to someone that has a creative mind, and they're creating. Then hire um, those people and put them decision right. making <laughs> and money spending positions. Right. I mean, um, I think that's where good can be done in the world is to put people who either maybe are artists or have an appreciation for art, whatever that is. I don't even know. Um, into decision-making positions. Mm-hmm. And when those people sit on school boards, when those people sit on library boards, when those people sit on county boards, when they sit on the boards of parks departments, local or national, then you will see art in all of those places. And very naturally, people, young and old, will learn from art by kakenohamoiko, consistent observation over a long period of time. So the continuation of of this, of what we just discussed, do you think a lot of tribal communities are not instituting educational, because there is a surge right now of uh, educational programs, be it language, be it the arts, be it all facets of Native American people and their communities. Do you think it's part of our mission as a continuation of a tribal community to continue what's come, what we're about, what's in our DNA, um, or just let those that are interested in uh, language and the arts and other facets of the tribal community take their own path. It seems to me if we look towards where things used to be and we think about clans and the reasons for clans and clan structures, it would be obvious that in the very structure of the way we build our communities, that the clan systems provide for that transmission of education from one place to the other. Um, Although I've just spent a few minutes telling you why I don't think it's my job to take care of all Mm -hmm. of that, I would also tell you that the other side of that coin is I consistently say that the transmission of culture in all its forms takes place in the most ordinary of circumstances, kitchen tables, backyard picnics, walks to the grocery store. The fact that our tribal communities can create places where learning can happen, I think that can be their function. My father used to say a couple of things, one of which was, you can't teach anybody anything. You can, however, Mm -hmm. create an environment where those who choose to learn have the resources Mm -hmm. to do so. You can create that environment. But then he also used to say that, in his opinion, the the reason for government was to do things that people cannot do for themselves. I probably can't build my own superhighway. I probably can't <laughs> right, I probably can't build my own hospital. I probably right. can't build my own old folks home. I probably can't build my own um, arts infrastructure for a community of 20 or 50,000 people. There's a good function for clans, for tribal Mm -hmm. governments, for traditional governments, for ad hoc folks 
to get together and do those kinds of things. And as a part of the community, I'm happy to do my piece, but I can't do the whole thing. Right, right. Again, you're only two hands and one person. Yeah. Although I would support those movements and do support mm-hmm. those movements. And I think it's important that the, the, the infrastructures that have the ability to create those kinds of spaces, it is on them mm-hmm. to do that. Tell me about some of the pieces that are most poignant art pieces uh, that you have that you say, that's like, that's my baby. <laughs> well, I have a few pieces that I'm very, very fond of. <clears throat> they live in different places right now. Um, there are a couple of them that are currently living at the Field Museum in Chicago as part of the new Native Voices exhibit. And I'm very happy for those pieces. Great Bear Hunt lives there. And I'm very pleased with him. Um, I have another piece, Bernard, uh, Bernard the Buzzard Bag. He lives out in New York State and he's flying now um, under the auspices of the New York State Museum in Albany. And I'm very proud for Bernard and very proud that he's got this kind of a good home. And I have another couple of pieces that are currently living at the Idlechard Museum in Indianapolis, the Mound Man and Rock Art Caribou. So Mound Man, he's really important to me. And, you know, if you do this, maybe you can find a picture of him and put him up so that he gets a chance to talk to the audiences. But Mound Man is based on... um, a piece of public art that was installed on the Wisconsin Wisconsin landscape. I don't know. I'm just going to say a thousand years ago. Right. Yeah. So part of the lecture is since native art has been on this landscape for a very long time, in its early forms, it had existed in probably two primary forms, um, rock art and sculptural art. Mm -hmm. Rock art is pictographs and petroglyphs painted on or scratched in to rock walls. And those are beautiful and very inspiring. But another kind of art that's endemic to what is now Wisconsin, Illinois, Indiana, um, Iowa, are uh, bas-relief sculptures. They're three-dimensional pieces of art on the landscape. Some people think of them as mounds, M-O-U-N-D-S. Mm-hmm. And those mounds are made of um, earth, made of earth, among other things, I guess. And they exist in a few basic forms, uh, conical mounds, which are just what they sound like, uh, rounded shapes, linear mounds, which are also what right. they sound like, and effigy mounds, which are in the shapes of living things. And then there are platform mounds. Effigy mounds are very interesting to me. And in southwestern Wisconsin, there is a mound called the Man Mound. So effigy mounds are in the shape of living things. Man Mound is in an anthropomorphic shape. And as far as I know, is the only still existing anthropomorphic mound, period. And it's mm-hmm. right there. He's very special. He was over 200 feet long when he was first created, maybe 12 or 18 inches high, lots and lots of basketfuls of dirt shaped and moved in a cooperative manner to create man. And he existed on that landscape for, we don't know, 800 or 1,000 years. And in the late 1800s, it was determined by uh, a non-native government that it was important to put a road through a particular area of southwestern Wisconsin 
And so that road was put through to cut Mount Ben off at the knees. And they were amputated his legs from the knees down past his feet. Well, they had to do it to put the road in, I understand. But it's curious right. to me because I've driven that road. And that road does curve around corners, a quarter mile or a half mile on either side of Man Mound. But for whatever reason, they couldn't curve around the Man Mound. Hmm. So that's, to me, an example of um, state-sponsored vandalism and the erasure of public art that has existed on this landscape for a very long time. Most of Man Mound is still there, most of him. And I developed a bit of a relationship with Man Mound. So much so that at some point I was inspired to recreate him, not with mm -hmm. soil, but with beads mounded up, not on a field of grass, but on a field of blue velvet. And I did bead him on a Victorian-era cast iron footstool. And when I beaded him, I gave him his knees and his feet back, and the irony was fully intended. Mound Man lived with me for quite a while after his creation, and I was happy to have him in my home, mm -hmm. sharing, sharing company with me. But the opportunity came for him to go live at the Idle Jorg and to be in conversation with thousands and thousands of visitors who come to see the new Native exhibit at the Idle Jorg. Mm -hmm. And so he's moved, and he lives there now, and I'm very pleased. I hope that people will go and see him and have a conversation with him. And then I hope that those people are inspired to take a closer look at the art that's been on this landscape. Mm -hmm. Of all the mounds that ever existed, all these bas-relief sculptures, and I learned that from Rob Nury, that they're really bas-relief sculptures. Estimates are that 95% of them are gone, erased, vandalized. Of the 5% that are left, some estimates say that 95% of them are severely damaged. But there are still a few, still a few precious nuggets of ancient art that are on the landscape. And I would encourage people to go and have conversations with that art. Where those conversations lead, I don't know. That part right. is not my job, but right. I would encourage people to have those conversations and see where they lead. Mm -hmm. To connect. Yes, yes. There's where you asked me earlier, do I think institutions have a responsibility? Right now, the Man Mound exists in a county park. And yeah. I think those caretakers have a responsibility and the funds to take care mm -hmm. of the man mound. But that doesn't mean that each of us as individuals or tribal peoples who feel an attachment to these things, these pieces, these living, living things, don't also have a responsibility to do whatever it is that we are moved to do to appreciate them and learn from them. Very true, very true. We can always learn from the past. I think it helps guide us for the future. I think that that is true. There's a reason for the past. Right, right. Right, to save <laughs> us pain. Right. right. Yeah. I had a doctor one time when I was a little kid, Dr. Hahn, and I remember him telling me, <clears throat> probably I was six or seven years old, he said, the only way to learn anything 
is through experience. Luckily, he said, it doesn't have to be yours. Interesting. <laughs> Doctors know. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, that got me thinking, even as a little kid, stuff is written down. Stuff is already, there's messages in music that was written four, five, six hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. The experience doesn't have to be mine for me to benefit from it. True. But you do have to pay attention. Yeah, that you do. Yeah, that you, you do. do. <laughs> so, of all the pieces that you've created, what has gotten the most the most attention that you were surprised by, but then again, not surprised by? <clears throat> attention was never something I craved for my mm-hmm. pieces, and so uh, it's not a surprise to me that people respond to the work. It's not a surprise to me that people respond to our history. It's not a surprise to me that people respond to our culture. I am grateful, and I'm grateful for the platforms that allow those pieces to have broader audiences. Mm -hmm. But I can't say, and I don't mean to sound egotistical, I can't say that I'm surprised. It's like being surprised by the beauty of the ocean. It's not surprising. It just is. It just is, yeah. And so I'm not surprised that people resonate when they run into the voices of our culture. That doesn't surprise me. It pleases me. Mm -hmm. I'm tickled pink, don't get me wrong. (laughs) Um, I also try really hard to understand that it has very little to do with me, but more to do with the subject matter, and even more to do with the life of legacies. Very Mm -hmm. little to do with me. I just happen to be in the room when those pieces come to life. Do you feel like you're the interpreter of those pieces coming to life? Not so much the interpreter, but just the the conduit. Mm-hmm. To say that, that I was sense. the interpreter would uh, imply that I completely understand. And the truth of it is that uh, I don't. Mm-hmm. I learn an awful lot when I'm in the midst of a production of a piece. I learn a lot about our history. I learn a lot about our culture. I learn a lot about our material culture and its progression over the centuries, thousands of years. But I learn an awful lot about myself. Awful lot about myself. And so, whether or not other people, Appreciate the work. Again, not to sound egotistical, I don't mean it in that way at all, but but I don't do this for others. I do it for the past, the present, the future, and very selfishly, I do it for me. I'm in a really unusual position where I don't need to make a living by selling the work that I do. I'm very fortunate. I know that. I know that in my bones that this is a rare and unusual position. But what that means is that I can make what I want, when I want, why I want. There's a freedom there. No, I was going to say that's absolute freedom. That's artistic freedom to... Yeah. Because you're not motivated by the end result or the revenue that 
your pieces generate. It's more about the it's yourself and what makes you and drives you and is part of what's internal process. Do you, yeah. when you create these pieces, do you, I want to say the word zone out that you get in your, your mindset and do the piece and not stop? Or do you take breaks to kind of take a breath and, and step back from yourself and the piece and look at it? It depends on the piece and it depends on the rhythm of the piece. But I would say that creating one of these pieces is very much like playing a piece of music or maybe composing a piece of music. If it mm -hmm. were all one temple, be quite dull. <laughs> if it were right. all one um, dynamic, that would be quite dull. And so to keep myself interested as an artist, just as a musician, um, there has to be variation in tempo and dynamics and, and mm -hmm. rest. I told you that my dad told me a lot of things. My dad was uh, a professional musician. And one time he told me, the most important moment in the music, in any music, is right before the first beat. That's hmm. where possibility lies. The moment before the first beat. Interesting. So rest matters. Rest matters. Mm -hmm. And I do incorporate that into my work. You can see it in the design. But you can also see it in the length of time that I'll spend in intimate conversation with a piece. Mm. But there again, so you don't I'm lucky. I don't right. work on a deadline. Right. That's what I was going to say. You're not restrained by a time frame. It's like this has to be happening at this, this point in time and be completed. Do you do commission work? Rarely. Rarely, mm -hmm. rarely, the last commission piece that I did was one that um, I actually wanted to do. And so I solicited the opportunity. It was for the Fenimore Art Museum in Cooperstown, New York. Um, that is in the middle of the Haudenosaunee homelands, as you might know. And it's a place mm -hmm. that I visited over the years and um, really have a connection to the land there, but also have a connection to the museum there. And so when I was out visiting for other purposes a year or so ago, I stopped by and I took my family with me and I wanted to show them this amazing place on Otsigo Lake. Otsigo Lake is a place where they say that the nations used to come together to, to council, to camp every summer. There is a place there called Council Rock, which is where the five mm -hmm. nations and then the six would meet. That piece of land use was in my mind. And so I reached out to the Fenimore Art Museum, to Eva Fognow there, and I solicited the idea of creating a piece motivated by that land and that water that could live in that museum. And fortunately, she accepted the idea, and so Otsiko Urn was born and now lives at the Fenimore Art Museum. It's the first um, modern uh, addition to the Thaw collection since the passing mm -hmm. of Eugene Thaw. And that's a really beautiful responsibility and place for Otsigo Urn to occupy. I hope that the urn will open doors for the addition of other contemporary Haudenosaunee artists to have their work, should they choose, find a place in the Thaw collection and to have Native voices really add to that chorus. 
And what's your thoughts that Native Native American art right now has a relevancy? It's the popular, it's the it factor, I guess, Mm -hmm. um, in in a current movement. Do you think those are phases that the Native American arts has every 10 to 15 years? We, you know, we go on an upscreen, we go down, we go up, we go down. You know, it's like if you're talking about the, um, uh, I don't know, the the business piece of this, are people more, are they collecting more? You know, I I think it's the business and the, and the, the appreciation and the connection and uh, the attraction to it, I suppose. You know, I, I I don't know because for for me, um, I grew up in a family of artists. My dad was a musician. My auntie was a painter. My cousins are are, are artists, uh, painters, and sculptors, and architects, and scientists, and so so I did never know that there wasn't native art. It just is. It was, yeah. And so are people outside community paying more attention to Native art? You know, I don't know. I hope so. Is that cyclical? Probably. I mean, people come and go on Cubism and people come and go on, you know, Victorian era work. People come right. and go. Stuff like that comes in and out of fashion. I mean, I get that. But I don't think that the core people who produce Native art ever ebb and flow like that. I think we're a constant mm-hmm. line, and other people join and they leave the dance, and they join and they leave, and that's all fine. It's all fine. What's next for you? Is there an ultimate goal that you have that you want to achieve? Um, no, there's not an ultimate goal that I want to achieve because to me, that's too close to a bucket list. And the concern for me about bucket (laughs) lists are when you check them all off, it's time to go. And I'm not really thinking (laughs) about going quite yet. You know, I'm not afraid it happened, but (laughs) good analogy, (laughs) (laughs) but I'm not, but there is a piece um, that I'm thinking about that has been on my mind for years now. And it has to do with um, uh, what has to do with this. I live in Stevens Point, Wisconsin. A couple of times I graduated from the local university here. The local university, University of Wisconsin at Stevens Point is built on a mass native burial. We've known that, we've known that. Mm -hmm. It's been my goal for the last several years to get the university to do something in the form of artwork, whatever that might look like, to acknowledge the fact that every day, every week, every semester, for 150 years, people have walked over the graves of my relations with nary a thought. Concrete mm-hmm. has been poured, buildings have been built, steam lines and fiber lines have been drilled through. This is, to me, unsettling. And so I've been working very hard to have the university do something. And they are glacially slow, glacially. So I said before that not everything is my job. And it's my job to bring this to their attention. My job to be their advocate, their gadfly. My job to urge them to do something. And we're making small progress. 
But what I am compelled to do is to create a piece of art that will honor those dead that are buried there. And so I'm not sure what that looks like quite yet. I'm not sure. Pieces are coming to me. Um, all of a sudden, I have a collection of beads made of bones. Where did those come from? I don't know. But all of a sudden, they're in my <laughs> supply closet. Um, I think that they're going to end up in conversation with an otter skin that came my way. And some, someone's trying to tell you something. I, well, you know, I'm thinking <laughs> yet. Yeah, I'm thinking. And like I said, things ferment for a while. And I suspect at some point I'm going to see whatever this piece of artwork is. But one thing I know is that um, they want to say something, those ancestors. Mm -hmm. When I first approached the university, well, not first, but I approached the university about this situation a couple of years ago, and they said, we can't really do anything. You know, we're in a pandemic. And I was like, yeah, you know what these people all died from. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, I find that ironic. I think, I think maybe that the lesson here is that we need to think about how we act in these extreme situations. What do we do for one another? In this pandemic, this epidemic back in the 1860s, um, boundaries were drawn so that people couldn't move from the Indian encampment into the settler's village. It sounded so similar to me to those boundaries that we drew at the beginning of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Healthcare was rationed. The best healthcare given to the influential and to the wealthy and the outsiders, like those Indians right. back in the 1860s, were left to fend for themselves and die. I think there are lessons to be learned. And I think a university could be in an amazing place to really spread those lessons. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm working on. That's what I'm working on. That's very prolific. It's very mm -hmm. um, energizing. I think it, it's also part of our culture that we respect and we honor our ancestry yeah. and our ancestral, where we came from. Agreed. Agreed. Right. Those people aren't asking for that much. Mm -mm, mm -mm. Just when you walk mm -hmm. over my grave, acknowledge it. When you think about how I died, don't do that to somebody else. Right. right. Yeah. To me, it's not that complicated. Very true. Very true. Well, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> The time comes that others will open their eyes and understand um, and respect that, you know? I hope so, too. And um, I did have a, a successful partnership, not with the university recently, but with the um, Portage County Parks Department in Portage County, Wisconsin. Lake Emily County Park has been known for a very long time, hundreds of years, to have mm -hmm. mounds within the boundaries of whatever this county park is. Even as far back as the 1930s, the Federation of Women's Clubs um, poured concrete and made brass markers and stuck them right on the top of those mounds. And so, and so nobody is um, 
surprised that there are mounds in this park. We know that. Right. But what bothered me was the uh, conversation about those mounds, the plopping of a concrete right in the middle of a mound. And, and so mm-hmm. uh, I partnered with uh, Dr. Ray Reeser, retired anthropologist, archaeologist, excuse me, archaeologist from UW-Stevens Point and uh, the Portage County uh, Parks Department. And we hired an Oneida artist to create a sculpture um, life-size and place it not on the mounds, but in the area of the mounds. So that hopefully when visitors come to that county park, before they rush off and picnic on the mounds or whatever it is that they do, they'll reach this area and they'll be stopped by this life-size sculpture of the sustainers, corn beans and squash. And they'll take a moment, just a moment, to take a breath and to think mm-hmm. about where they are and why they're there. And then I hope they go about their day and have a wonderful picnic with their families or whatever it is that they've come to Lake Emily mm-hmm. to do. That's what I want to do when I say I want to normalize Native art on the public art landscape. That's what I want to do. Do you think it's part of the tribal communities that also do that to take, have initiative to develop that? You know, would I be happy for more partners? Absolutely. You know, I would, mm-hmm. I would not at all slam a door in anyone's face who wants to partner with this kind of thing. I don't know that it's necessarily any particular tribal community's job to do this, although I would welcome the support. I will say that it feels to me like for um, post-contact Native peoples, we seem to have lost the memory of who it was that created these original moments. And so I've yet to meet someone who can sing me the song, tell me the tradition, dance me the dance that Mm -hmm. has to do with this public art. And in a way, I think that broadens the ability of all of us to shared caretaking responsibilities for these ancestors. They are all of our well, ancestors. So anybody I mean, who's motivated it. to step up and help, I think it is a wonderful idea. That's fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The more the merrier. But you said a word, caretaker. I yeah. know a lot of uh, Native American cultures believe we're just the caretakers of this land. We're not the owners. We don't belong, We don't own it. It's not ours. <laughs> we're just the take caretaker. It's true. And I I used a word earlier that I've been trying to erase from my vocabulary, and that word is stewardship. And I'm really trying to erase that idea of stewardship with the land um, because I talked earlier about English being a bit frail sometimes. To me, this idea of, of stewardship has embedded in it a hierarchy, that one mm-hmm. thing takes care of another. And what I really want to think more about and use verbiage more about is not so much stewardship and maybe not even caretaking, but responsibility. 
And for that, res- yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm not, I mean, this idea is not fully formed in my head yet, but mm. there is this notion that, yeah, I'm responsible for those ancestors. They're responsible for me. They did something for me. I'm doing something for them. This evenness doesn't have to take place in the same moment in time. Uh, but I think I just lost there is this notion of responsibility. If I take a fish from the lake to feed my family, then I'm responsible to make sure that that lake is healthy and can support those fish. No, I truly believe that. I like that morphing of the shared responsibility, both from our past, our current, and our future. Yes, and I've been using of a soap bubble to try to describe Mm -hmm. that. You know how when you see a soap bubble... All those different colors kind of swirl and merge and come apart, but then they re-merge. The past, the present, the future, all of that is just swirling, merging. When you pop it, try to make things linear, the whole soap bubble falls apart. I think that might be what this is like. I'll let you know. Okay. <laughs> Keep me up to date. But I think I think that's I think that's the metaphor that I'm working with these days. That's fantastic. Yeah. So is is there a continued learning process for you as an artist and your art form? Yeah. Technically technically I know that I'm better than I was. Technically I know that. Um mm-hmm. I'm taking more risks with shape, with color with form than I ever did before, but also know that my responsibilities are to keep connected. And while it's important, I think, uh, to push the art form, to those materials, to do new and different things, to create something that's never been created before. I think it's equally important to stay connected to that which made the present possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's the sticky wicket. There's the fun part. <laughs> there's the fun. Right, right. There's the challenge. Do you think uh, Native American artistry is pushing the limits, that it's going into a contemporary form, but we're still keeping true to ourselves and our ancestors and the original art forms that populated that culture 100, 200, 300 years ago. I do think there are some artists who are doing that. And I look to them as role models and inspiration. I think of, of course, my teacher, Samuel Thomas. But I also think of people like Kelly Church. And Kelly Church, to me, is an inspiration in terms of who she is and what she does and how she does it. Her connections to her art form are deeply, deeply rooted. Her concerns for the future are very impressive. And the way she expresses that with her hands and her art are this amazing contemporary expression of Mm. who she is and maybe who we maybe all could be as contemporary Native people. Yeah. There are some artists who are really excitingly pushing, seeking, it is, finding it is. And it's, it's new interesting ways to see to as we've progressed as a culture, yeah, that's and cool people. You know, there, we have respect to the past, but also it's a living form. And we're 
we have to grow with the times and the future. Yes, we have to dedicate ourselves to learn from the past and incorporate it in a way that it's reused, but also respected. We just lost an artist from Michigan, mm -hmm. Shirley Brooker. From um, uh, she was an amazing uh, painter, but also uh, a pierced clay worker. And so she was one of those artists, I think, who was pushing, pushing the form. And I think that we will sadly miss her in the Native arts community for her inspiration yes, and her courage. It takes a good deal of courage to do something that's not been done mm -hmm. before. Mm -hmm. It's a huge risk. Do you exhibit? Do you uh, participate in, in some of the the festivals, the art fairs, or exhibitions of Native American artistry? <laughs> I'm really terrible. I do one art market. <laughs> I do one art market, and that's the Idle Drug Art Market. And I really do that. Um, it's, I've always said for the, it, it's my vacation. It's my way to visit all these friends that I only see once a year. That's the reason I do the Idol Jorg. Um, I did just get back from an artist in residency at the Idol Jorg. So I appreciate their mission and the way in which they're handling Native art. I also appreciate the fact that they are putting um, really intelligent, really skilled Native people in right. decision-making positions. I think that's important, and I want to support that by participating. <laughs> I would love I would love for people to come and see my beadwork, um, go to the Field Museum in Chicago. Um, Great Bear Hunt is right at the beginning of the exhibit. Great Bear Hunt is right at the beginning of the exhibit, and he will welcome you to the rest of the exhibit. There's much to see. Come to the Idle Jar Museum. Mound Man is there, and he would welcome you as well. Go to the Fenimore Art Museum. Stop out at the Nerman Museum of Contemporary Art out in Overland, Kansas. And don't forget to stop by the New York State Museum in Albany. I want to thank you. I think this is really wonderful that you're providing this platform for Native art. Mm -hmm.